Welcome to episode 13 of The Matchup, storytelling podcast from St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where you, the listener, gets to decide who told the most compelling story. I'm your host, Jason Franklin, and today we have back with us for the third and final time this year, <laughs> the Reverend Nick Van Horn and Dr. Mark Audrey Graves. Welcome back, gentlemen. It's good to be here for round three of the Battle of the Marks. The Rise of Skywalker of... <laughs> Which sets the bar low, right? Like, hey, there's, that, you know, hey, there's opinions. There's opinions. What third movie in a trilogy is the best? Ooh. Is there any? No, that's a podcast. No, so as we're thir- as yeah. we're, is as there we're, anywhere this the th- is concluding? Like, is there anywhere where the third one's the best of all three? Superman 3 said no one ever. No. Said no one ever. Godfather 3 said no one ever. I had a friend who, who referred to that as the made-for-TV Godfather Aww. movie. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Oh, I can't think. So, you know, here's the thing. I, I apologize. Now yeah. we'll be in the middle of this, and a movie will pop up. And I know. That's, that's okay. So, Rocky okay. 3. Yeah. I was thinking Star Trek 3, but I don't know. Yeah. Return mm. of the Jedi. It's, it's not, not better than Empire. Empire. <laughs> okay, bring it back in. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, Nick and Mark, you've recorded two episodes so far. Episode yep. 9, Best Supernatural Event in Church History, and Episode 10, The Worst Person from the Reformation. Although it's a close race, the person current leading in both is Mark Audrey Graves. Because he has church friends. <laughs> One of my friends, don't even though I do this. So, Mark, what's your, what's your magic? Why, why are you winning? Oh my! Uh, oh, he, he goes back every story. other day and hits enter. That's what he's doing. <laughs> I'm he has several email addresses for moments like this. <laughs> no, I, 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 what can I say? What can I say? I, I, uh, you're you're just good at what you do. I'm just good. Yeah, I just I I. I have a gift for picking oh, things. Geez. Okay, okay. Nick, is this the episode where you make come back? Yeah, I don't even care. It's, the whole competition thing is comes, comes from a place of insecurity. Okay. <laughs> Today's theme is the most interesting story from the Apocrypha. So I was hoping you all could share a little bit about what the Apocrypha is, just in case some people might not have yeah. an idea of understanding. Yeah, it's an X-Men villain. It's, <laughs> no, that's Apocalypse. I'm sorry. Um, Mark, go ahead and get started, and I can kind of yeah, you kind of fill in a little right. bit about because it's yeah, here's how it, I've it's convoluted. It, it's yeah. yeah, and as Anglicans, it it really does occupy this middle ground for us. I was gonna say it is a prime example of the Via Media, yeah, even how right. we have it in our Bible, and yet it's not. Yeah, like, we it's, use it at, more, at the daily office. We do, but and, and, but we don't use it in the Eucharistic lectionary. And when yes, mm. but whenever it is in the lectionary for the office, you always have somebody coming yeah. up going, that's not in my Bible. Yeah. Ooh, actually, it is in the Eucharistic lectionary. It is. We've yeah. had it a couple Feast of times. Days. All Souls, yeah. All Saints shows up. You it know, has. But at rare occasions. Yes. And mm. it's and that goes back to, you know, the, the rise of, of the Church of England and the whole Via Media thing and Thomas Cranmer. But it, it does. It It's the way I like to think about it. It is, although there are exceptions because nothing is simple in the world. It's essentially Hebrew scriptures that were, for the most part, originally written in the Greek language and are not part of the official canon of Jewish scripture now. Okay. So even though they were part of a collection, uh, the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, they were included in that collection and so had scriptural status for at least some communities of Jews in the ancient world, 
they're not part of what's known as the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew language text mm -hmm. of those books of the Bible, what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. Um, so they have this other status. Now, some of them may have, a, there's a couple I can think of that at least one book was most likely originally written in Hebrew, and that's Sirach, the wisdom of Ecclesiasticus. Yes. But, but most of them, including the book that I'm going to talk about, was originally written in Greek, and that's the oldest we have. Is, is a, is, it's a Hebrew scripture from the Jewish communities of the Mediterranean world but written at a time when Greek was the language that was being used. Okay. Yeah, and it, it brings up a, another um, subject, too, in the sense that not everybody reads the same Bible. Yeah. And I don't mean yeah. just from Jew to Gentile. I mean yeah. from Catholic to Protestant through Protestantism. I mean, so then the Catholic Bible, like if you go to a Barnes & Noble, yeah. which is not where I would recommend getting a Bible, um, but if you went there, it would say Catholic Bible, and you assume the Apocrypha is in it because it's canonized in theirs. Yeah. Ours is the Bible with Apocrypha. But if you went to like a family bookstore, you, well, you probably couldn't find a good translation that is, you know, anyway, because it's all NIV. But that would just not be a part of it. So when people ask how many books are in the Bible, you have to say, well, which Bible are you going yeah, for? What right. tradition are you going for? It's a lot more nuanced right. than we all read from the same thing. And don't forget the Ethiopian Bible, which has a lot more books in it than even the Roman Catholic Bible does. Yeah, yeah. The yes. Coptic and the Ethiopian churches have books that aren't even in our Apocrypha. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and, and also interesting, and Jason, you and I talked about, is the Hanukkah tradition actually comes from the Apocrypha because mm. they still value it as, as historical, but it's not, uh, you know, theological canon. So there, there's some, I think the via media, what we would suggest is, again, going back to what we talked about before, is there is some truth into this tradition. There's 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 a reason why these things have lasted throughout history, yeah. um, but we're not willing to make that leap where the where yeah. the Catholics are. But we also weren't willing to just push it off to the side either, right. which is a prime example. Yeah. So it's actually pretty good that we're looking at this yeah. after our, our previous conversation. Yeah, it's true, and and the, I think one of the great ironies, well, depending on how you look at these things, it may or may not be an irony that the one of the main reasons why most Protestant churches do not include the Apocrypha is because Martin Luther. Uh, decided to get rid of it in the Lutheran church. Um, and his reasoning was because it was not part of the Jewish scriptures at the time, which is a little ironic when you think about how Martin Luther felt about Super ironic, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But he said, well, it's not canon for the Jews, so it shouldn't be canon for us. Okay. That's the main reason why most Protestant churches don't, don't yes. use it. And, and, and to add to that, Martin Luther also struggled with even having revelation in the Protestant. Mm. Or the book of James. Or the book of James. <laughs> Definitely that. Yeah. I'm kind of glad we kept that. But his reasoning for like revelation, we're going on a tangent, is he was concerned that people were going to read it incorrectly. That yeah. is irony. That didn't happen, I guess. Yeah. So that's great. You know, so so there yeah. so again, he valued the truth in it. So again, there's it just depends on how many books. Whenever mm -hmm. I do confirmation, people ask how many books. I'm yeah. like, it just depends. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so in each episode, our two guests will present their case. We'll talk a little about it. And after the episode, you get to vote on who told the best story. I'm the only person who knows what story each person is going to tell. And normally I decide who goes first. But this time I thought since it's, it's round three, I'm going to leave it up to y'all. Who wants to take the first leap? Do we want to wrestle? I've gone first twice with the three with with. Our lineup. Oh, is that I think, right? No, I went first. Oh, you went first. It's, no, yeah, you're one for one. We're one for one. We're one for one. We're one for one. Mark, I'll let you decide since you're the champion <laughs> of the trillion. Listen, the vote is ongoing. 
Yeah. yeah every vote counts. When does the vote stop, by the way? Uh, that's a good question. Tech, uh, <laughs> Forever? Uh, like, in terms of technically, everything is going to the first. But I haven't really set a policy on how long. Oh, okay. That's curious. She's mm. suspicious. Call all my friends and relatives. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they won't do it. Thanksgiving is a great time to... You know, <laughs> Mark's talk about be, politics. Mark's gonna be sitting there. And his whole family. Someone has to hey go first, friends. Before we go, I would like everybody to vote for me for my for my podcast. Oh, that would be goodness. a great Christmas present. You know, Nick, I would love it if you went first. I fine. That's fine. <laughs> I, I guess I am visitor in your arena, <laughs> so that's fine. So I want to talk about it's it as soon as you said this, I knew which story I was going to do. Yeah, because I feel like you got it to me fast. Yeah, it's one of those stories that I always really appreciated. Uh, uh, whenever youth ask what's in the Apocrypha, I always kind of go to this story. And if people are genuinely interested, I, I kind of share the story to say there's some really, really cool stuff into this. So the one that has always stuck with me ever since seminary is the book of uh, Tobit. I or, knew it. I knew that's you, what you're right. right? <laughs> or or Tobit or <laughs> The book of Tobias. It just depends. Okay. And and so it just uh, it just depends on who who Tobias Funke. I, I knew you were gonna, <laughs> see. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> so um, yes, the book of Tobias Funke. Um, it's a really cool story in that it parallels a little bit of Job. It parallels a little bit of Jonah. But it's also one of those stories that um, it's much more lighthearted, even mm -hmm. though there is some drama in it. You could almost see this as being like a comedy with heart if they made okay. a movie out. I mean, there, again, there's some serious stuff. You know, good comedies have biblical rom com. Yeah, biblical, it's it's not a rom com. It's, there's nothing romantic about it. But but um, but I mean, it's it's a little more lighthearted. But but it also just ha has just really good truth in it, and I just always enjoy it. It's one of those that if it was a movie, you could put it on the background. You know, mm. something like that. So basically, the story is of a man named Tobit is he's, he lives in Nineveh, mm -hmm. and we are all familiar with Nineveh from Jonah. Jonah. And he's exiled in Nineveh by the Assyrians, to kind of give you a little historical context with that. So he is in exile. He is not where he is supposed to be, which is very truthful, giving the, the historical context of the Apocrypha too. This is several hundred years before Christ, so it's kind of like in that gap space between Old and, and New Testament. And there's a lot of that. There's a lot of um, you know people not living where they're supposed to be, mm. right? Um, and so it kind of starts in the context of that. Um, and it has, um, it's, so there's a lot of switching of kings in the story of, of, of Tobit. Uh, the first Assyrian king was okay uh, to the point where uh, he actually appointed Tobit to do some clerical work for him, for the foreign people and everything. So there was a relationship with him and with that. Um, and he... Uh, and he appreciated uh, his relationship with Tobit too. Kind of, kind of like going, harkening back to the relationship with Joseph. I mean, here's a guy who is, you know, of a, a particular descent, not part of that uh, institutional construct, yet still had respect uh, because that's the way the king was at the time. Mm. Then what happens is the king dies and his son comes, and his son is nothing like his father. Mm. He's terrible. Matter of fact, what happens is he commits genocide with with uh, the Israelite people. And Tobit is gone during this time. Uh, he comes back and he discovers this. And his wife tells him this is what happened. And Tobit, being a good Jew, says, we have to honor these people by burying them. 
We just mm. can't leave them out. They're just, you know, and so Tobit was very big in, in the burial practices of the Jewish tradition. As a matter of fact, earlier in the story, he talks about how this was very, very important to him. And he's, and so what he does is he makes sure they all get buried. Okay. Um, then uh, the king dies, has another son who is not as bad, but not as good, kind of in between. So there's a little bit of respect. Tobit is there in within the kingdom. And uh, they discover, uh, a friend of his discovers there was another body, and he's kind of known as the guy who buries people. So he's like, you need to go do this. Okay. So Tobit says, okay, I'm going to go do this. Wife says, why don't you have dinner first? He's like, nay, I need to do this job first, and then I can relax. So what he does is he buries this, this dead person. Okay. And Tobit, again, being a good Jew, said, I am now unclean. I cannot eat right now. You know, maybe I should have listened to my wife. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's what she was trying to tell me. Um, so he says, I have to sleep outside for the night before I can go back home and eat. Yeah. So what happens is he, and I love this story, I love telling it to kids, is he, he's uh, at the city wall and he, he decides to sleep right there. And unbeknownst to him is a family of pigeons that just land on the wall where he is uh, laying. I can tell you're like, where is this going? Mark's like, I know where it's going. Um, during the night, you have to know he, very little about pigeons to imagine. Where yes, <laughs> during the night, he has his trouble sleeping. He so he can't keep his eyes closed. And during the night, the birds decide to poo as pigeons do. Yeah. And it hits his ocular cavities and he becomes blind from the poo. Gross. OK, and so what what's really sad about it, it's comical. But what's sad about it is because of that, he can no longer work. He can no mm. longer function. So his wife has to work which I don't know if you know this, but there's a hint of misogyny in, the, in, in our history. <laughs> and that's very hard for him to accept. And he has a really hard time with it. And so his life starts falling apart. He loses any of his wealth. His relationship with his wife is going astray. Very much like Job in that sense. Yeah. Like he had everything going. He was a really good Jewish person who believed in God and did all these practices. And then this bad thing kind of happened and everything kind of fell apart. They were losing money. One thing that I didn't mention earlier in the story is that uh, when Tobit was doing really well, he asked a dear friend of his to hold some of his money for him. And his friend decided to do that. So when they were in dire straits, Tobit asked his son Tobias to go and collect that money. Like, and and mm -hmm. this would be enough money to get him out of debt. They would be okay. The story, and this is why they call it the book of Tobias, is Tobias goes on this journey and this adventure in a very Tolkien fashion. Mm. You know, and he meets all these different people. He goes and collects the money that, that is uh, his father's from his friend. And on his way, he meets Raphael, the archangel. Okay. Okay. Um, not the Ninja Turtle, but I still <laughs> imagine him having read because that's, I'm a child of the 90s. And so Raphael, again, is he... Um, do not be afraid. I'm an angel, yada, yada, yada. I'm going to come with you because your father has been in favor with God. He's done the things that, that God has expected him to do. I want to go back home with you. Um, so they return back to Tobit's house. And in some understanding of the story, Raphael is just seen as a person. And he, he welcomes him. He feeds him. He brings him his money. And Raphael says, if you take a gall of a fish, which is kind of like fish guts, it's actually... Yeah. Um, like the the liver and the bladder, it would have, ironically, it would have poo in that too. Mm. You take that and rub it into the eyes of Tobit, he would gain his sight back. Yep. So bird poo, blind, 
fish poo site cool. if you want to learn anything, right? So the end of the story kind of, you know, ends in this, you know, like Christmas carol kind of way where everybody's all happy. He gets his eyesight back. He gets his, um, he gets his uh, wealth back. They're sitting there at the table. And then Raphael is like, hey, by the way, and he like snaps and his wings show up. He's like, I'm an angel of God. You know, it's like <laughs> one of those. Do not be afraid. Um, and uh, and he explains to him why this has happened. So it's kind of like a spoon fed, okay. you know, common tale. Um, I'm probably I'm pretty sure I butchered it a little bit. But that's really kind of the story is, again, it parallels that that whole idea of what Job says, what Ecclesiastes yeah. say, is that bad things happen to good people and vice versa. And that's what they're challenging at that time. They do it in a more uh, less dramatic, wholehearted way, more family movie style. Yeah. Um, but I always loved sharing with the kids. And then the bird booped in his eyes and he <laughs> lost his sight, which is what would happen. You know, <clears throat> I believe that more than. The, the goal of a fish bringing your sight back. But hey, Raphael, you know, yeah. he knows his stuff. Yeah. So, it, it, again, very lighthearted story. I've always loved it. It's just a neat tale to tell kids. Yeah. And, and and it's a good way to introduce the complexities of the theology in which it brings. Hmm. Um, and that's what I've always really appreciated about Tobit. Yeah. Or Tobit. Or Tobias. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's... it's it's a lovely. I, I like Tobit. I like Tobit in the way that I like Hufflepuff. <laughs> it is the Hufflepuff of the apocalypse. Okay. Backhanded compliment yeah. there. Yeah. I'm a Hufflepuff because I'm about way. to throw it down <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Are you going to Slytherin style? Huh? Uh, yeah, there's a little bit. I mean, I prefer to think of it as Gryffindor, but there is kind of a Slytherin element <laughs> to what I'm about to to, oh, to lay out here. But okay. it's interesting because some of the things that you mentioned are going on in this book of the apocrypha also. It, I will say, let me let me give a little background. I, I don't well, I don't know if I can tell this story, but I think I can I can <clears throat> keep it anonymous enough okay. to protect the innocent. So it's about Sarah. I, I did not. It's not about Sarah. <laughs> I did not grow up in a tradition where the apocrypha was. Mm. You know, I grew up in the Baptist church, and so that oh, that Catholic Bible. Mm. You know, the Catholics aren't Christians because they've got. The wrong bible yeah that was, that's the narrative sure. and so i came to the apocrypha you know a little bit late um and really fell in love with it yeah. there's so much i just love all the richness i remember reading we had to read second esdras in a class i took in college <laughs> um, and i was like what is this is it? but the you know and so my my favorite book of the apocrypha which is why i couldn't do it for this is because it's not a story my favorite book of the apocrypha is the wisdom of solomon mm -hmm. you know, wisdom literature there's no story yeah, it's just yeah. but but i once upon a time years ago worked at a church where as the as the organist um and choir director and the architecture of the church meant that when i was sitting at the organ bench i was tucked away in a little alcove and nobody could see me hmm. um and it was also at a, a context where um this is why i wasn't sure it's anonymous i'm not going to say which i've worked in a lot of churches so i won't say which one um can i start naming I, off I, no, no, no. <laughs> I, re I realized that i was hearing the same sermon every week hmm basically was this in a methodist church it's, it's, no, okay. it doesn't matter it doesn't theory. matter and <laughs> and um and so i started getting prepared and i had you know i had my little bible there and so sermon time i just started reading <laughs> you're like i need to get something <laughs> i need to get yeah and i came across a short little book called the book of judith mm. and i and i started reading this and i went oh my god this is amazing yeah this is 
So like my mean squeeze, Judith, let me, I'm here to tell you, <laughs> she is, I am also about to drop the first profanity on the matchup. She is a badass. All and right. No other way to say it. You can bleep that if you need to <laughs> okay. and replace it with me saying a wonderful woman, but <laughs> she is a badass, this Judith. So the book of Judith is interesting because it is apocrypha among apocrypha. Yeah. Like mm. It's even like one of the last ones that was admitted into this group of okay. books because from the get-go because people didn't know what to do with it it's very obviously fiction and written to be mm. fiction it is it's like a novel it's like a little novelette you know which there are precedents for i mean you could say that job is kind of like that yeah absolutely uh, you know and or even jonah is like that sure in the old testament canon but it's it's the the writer gives you clues that they're playing with names and things and because at the outset king nebuchadnezzar the king in nineveh and you're like wait a minute nebuchadnezzar was in babylon well that's that's intentional yep. to say they're playing with tropes yep. about the enemies of israel huh. so this guy who's the king nebuchadnezzar is not the nebuchadnezzar that we know right. but that name is a stand-in and people have been trying to figure out who are they really talking about with this yeah. This book, you know, comes from that, you know, during the time of the Maccabees, um, when for kind of the last time in the ancient world, um, the Jewish people have governmental autonomy over themselves. Mm -hmm. And this book was probably written in the context of that talking, you know, but it but it has parallels to other stories in mm -hmm. the Bible. It has parallels to the book of Judges with with Deborah and mm. Jael. I was totally thinking of Deborah when you think of yeah. Judith. Yeah, yeah. And, and it has parallels with some other um, stories, you know, with the book of Daniel and things. But it's so it's written in such a great way, though. It's it's so brilliantly written. Um, it's it's a prologue and two acts. Um, so the prologue is this king referred to as Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Assyrians, um, is has goes to battle with his arch rival, who is King Arphaxad. I love these names. Mm -hmm. Who is the king of the Medes further east? Mm -hmm. And Nebuchadnezzar, so called, sends emissaries out to all of his neighbors and more or less people he assumes are his allied kingdoms, and says, "I've got to fight this other." my arch rival nemesis. So you all need to send mercenaries and send soldiers and send people to join my army to defeat our Foxad. Hmm. Sounds a little bit like Farquaad. Yeah. Doesn't it? But, uh, and all of these other neighbor Kings say, nah, <laughs> no, we're good. We're not going to help. We don't need to help you. And he gets royally angry. I mean, just furious at the insult that none of his emissaries come back with promises of aid. And he says, just you wait. I'm, I will eke out my revenge on you. He goes anyway to battle against our Foxhod, crushes him, destroys him. And the story says he waits six years after he wins the war. Six years later. So that's the prologue. He mm. wins the war and says... I'm going to remember all you people who didn't help me. So act one opens six years later. He's like, now it's time for my revenge. Hmm. He gets his, his trusted general whose name is Holofernes. Holofernes is the villain of the story. Okay. 
Holofernes is kind of, he's a sycophant. He is a kiss up to King Nebuchadnezzar. Mm -hmm. uh, but Nebuchadnezzar calls Holofernes and says, okay, get the largest army you can. So it's like 200,000. I don't remember off the top of my head the exact number, but this enormous, obviously hyperbolized, you know, fictional thing again. Um, tens of thousands of, of archers on horseback. And he says, gather your army and go visit all of these neighbor kings who didn't help me six years ago and destroy them. Mm. If they surrender, plunder their cities, take all their wealth, and take them as slaves. If they don't surrender, kill them all. Jeez. And this, the first few chapters in Act 1 go through you know, and almost like painstaking detail how Horophanes does this. He just like, it's like a plague of locusts over the land. It's like mm -hmm. Genghis Khan, just like destroying all of these other kingdoms and cities and places. Until who's left? The Judeans. Hmm. And the story is like, you know, and they're, and, and they're even, Holofernes is saying, who are these people? Who are these holdouts up? In the, they're like the people on the high places in the hills. Mm -hmm. Like they're just almost like little, you know, inconsequential. He doesn't know who they are. He's like, who are these people that we haven't gotten to yet? Yeah. And he has a deputy um, and his his deputy is is named. Um, hold on. This is why I've got this here. Akior. And Akior is like, oh, I know who they are. These are the Jews. And I'm here to tell you, they seem inconsequential. They've got these little, you know, they're not Egyptians. They're not Assyrians like that, you know. But they have this God. And if they are obeying their God, you're not going to be able to defeat them. Mm. They have been in exile in Babylon and they've just returned. Um, the writer is playing to its audience. The writer so is playing to well, his audience right? so well. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and and Akior says they've they've come back from being in exile. They've built this temple. They have this god they worship. And their story. And he like recounts the whole story <laughs> from Genesis and Exodus. He's like they're descended from this guy who came from Ur, and then they went to Egypt. And then they, and he tells the whole story to Holofernes to say when they are disobedient, their god like lets them suffer. But when they're obedient, they are indefeatable. You so my advice to you is to leave them alone. Hmm. And Holofernes is like, if I leave them alone, King Nebuchadnezzar will kill me for not doing my mm. job. Um, and so he actually takes Akior and kicks him out and says, forget, and his other advisors are like, Psh, what is he talking about? Hmm. Forget it. Nebuchadnezzar is the only God we have. And it uses that language like throughout, there's all these things of from chapter one saying, Nebuchadnezzar is the Lord of the earth. And so, the Jewish reader is like, ooh, he's going to go down for using that language. Like, <laughs> planting the seeds of, ah, I see what's happening here. So Akior gets kicked out, and he actually goes to this Jewish town that's like the border. It's like Gondor. It's like the <laughs> fort that's guarding the entryway into the kingdom on top of the mountain. In order to get to Jerusalem, you have to go. It's called Bethulia is the name of this town. So Akior runs to Bethulia and, like, you know, they let him in and he and he kind of tells them what's up. And he's like, I've been kicked out, but listen, I don't want to mess with you guys. So let me just stay here. And they say, okay, you can stay here. 
Um, so Holofernes and his giant army decide, well, because the city's on top of the mountain, it's not going to be easy to capture because only one or two people can go up through the pass at the time. But they depend on going outside of their city to get the water they need for their town. So if we lay siege to the city and control hmm. the water sources, we'll starve them out and they'll surrender and then we can kill them all. Yeah. So that's what they start doing. They lay siege to the city. That's the end of Act 1. Act 2 begins with the high priest and kind of the the like the mayor of, of Bethulia saying, all right, God is with us. Um, but there's a problem. We're running out of water. All the people of the city are, they're realizing we're under siege. We're going to starve. We don't have any water. What do we do? What do we do? And the high priest and the mayor say, let's wait five days. We can hold out for five days. And if God does not rescue us in five days, then we will surrender. And, you know. So there's this woman, Judith, who lives in town. Enter <laughs> stage left, Judith. It's like when a movie says its own title. Exactly. And, they, <laughs> and the character doesn't show up yeah. for a while. And that's the story. Like, why is this movie called Judith? Where's I've been in like nine chapters of <laughs> Enter Judith, okay. who is presented as she's a widow. She's a Jewish widow who is respected in the town, but she's a woman and she's a widow. If we know anything about the biblical world, that's not exactly a commendation for a powerful, influential leader. Mm -hmm. And yet, Judith don't care. <laughs> Judith, here's what they have decided. She goes to the high priest and the leader of the city and says, that is dumb. <laughs> that is a dumb, faithless, stupid idea. Uh, I've got a bookmark here where she basically says, you do not bind the counsels of the Lord our God, for God is not as man that he may be threatened, neither is he the son of man that he should be wavering. She's like, don't give God a test of five days. Mm -hmm. God will save us at any point, even if it's more or less than five days. Don't, don't you people know anything about God? She's like, let me take care of it. <laughs> I got you. Let You people, let me do this. So she has been in mourning over her husband who died. She goes out and prays. And there's this beautiful prayer, the prayer of Judith as part of this book. And she says, God, be with me. I want to save our people. I know that you will be with me. Be with me. I have an idea, and it's actually all wrapped up in deception. But God, you can work through my deception to liberate your people. She goes back home, takes off all of her sackcloth. The, the story says she bathes in water, which is a little ironic because of the whole water situation. Yeah. But she's yeah. got some water. Okay. Mm -hmm. She bathes, like puts on all of her finery, puts oil, you know, the whole bit, makeup, rings, earrings, headwear, it's all in here. She gets her maid servant. She gets some kosher food and some wine, wraps it up, leaves the city with her maid servant, and goes directly to the camp of Holofernes. And Holofernes is like, who is this? And she, she says, I would like to speak with the general. 
And she's allowed in and says, okay, you want to capture this city? I got you. I'll help you do it. Um, they don't know what they're doing. I'm realizing if I stay there, I'm going to die. So if I help you, you can help me, right? And he is he is smitten with her. He's like, oh, yeah, I will help <laughs> you however you want me to. Um, and she says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to stay here and um, hang out, and I will show you a secret passageway into the city where you can lead your soldiers, and they can destroy, destroy it and mm. take it from the inside. He's like, that's great. Let's have a party. And she's like, we can, but I'm going to eat my own food because I've always kept all my commandments. And even now, because the people in the city are being unfaithful, that's why you're going to take it. But I'm going to remain faithful. So let me drink my own wine <laughs> and have my own food. And he's like, that's fine. And, and you know, don't touch me. I'm not, you know, I'm not here for that. And he's, he's like, okay, wink, wink, <laughs> I won't. But they have this big party. And she's like, here's what I need you to do. I need you to let me go out and pray to my God for this whole thing so you can take the city. He's like, okay, that's good. So she does that and she starts this custom of going out with her maidservant and praying and coming back. And he sets up a tent for her and um, and she's like, okay, tomorrow is the day. And she has gotten into his good graces. So he has an even bigger party. And he's all the time thinking, all right, I'm gonna fool her and she's gonna be mine. He drinks so much wine, and the story says, more than he has ever consumed from nope. his youth. He passes out drunk on his little bed there in anticipation of conquering this holdout Jewish city the next day. She goes out, as people have gotten used to seeing her do, goes out and prays with her maidservant. But she goes around the back of the tent and re-enters his tent where nobody can see him. She takes his sword off the wall and chops his head off. She puts Holofernes' head into her little bag and goes with her maidservant back up to the city, to Bethulia. And she, she says to the herald at the tower, hey, I've got a present for you guys, and holds up Holofernes' head. And they let her in the city. Um, and she presents, it, she presents Holofernes' head to the leaders of the city. And they're, they're like, hey, this is... How'd you do this? She's like, I didn't cross any lines. Don't worry. But I deceived him. And here you go. You're welcome. <laughs> Meanwhile, back at, at the camp of the Assyrians, they start to wake up. And Holofernes' servant is like, oh, he's in there with Judith. But it's time. We got to get going and conquer the city. He knocks on the door and there's no answer. He's like, I don't want to disturb him, but we got it. He opens the door and sees the body with no head. Yikes. And flips out and the entire army goes into disarray and freaks out. And it's like, you know, running into each other and running around in circles. Like they're running with their head cut off? It, yes. Except they, cause, <laughs> and, it, and it keeps referring over and over again in the text to the body with no head. Okay. Over and over again. The body Yikes. with no head. And they uh, the, then the people, the Jewish people leave Bethulia and chase the army and they chase them away. And they're, it says they're never bothered again during Judah's lifetime. Wow. She, and she has all these suitors, and she's like, no, I'm a widow. And she stays a widow. That's what's so interesting um, through the end of the story and is acclaimed as this just wonderful leader of the people in her own way. And to be just because this little book has everything, at the end, there's a canticle. There's the song of Judith at the end mm. um, in that style of, of 
psalmody <laughs> canticle a poetry the Celine Dion sing it the Celine she might <laughs> in the in the Netflix movie of Judith Celine Dion sings the song and so let's and that's, be honest it yeah. would be a Christian movie so <laughs> Candace Cameron Byrne <laughs> that is on point yes so you gotta Judith, stay relevant you gotta stay ooh, relevant man. but she just she takes matters into her own hands she's like you men are wasting your time let me do it and does what it takes gets into the good graces of this guy chops his head off and you know and the thing that's so interesting about judith i mean among many other things is it this has become a very favorite depiction in art there's a lot of especially in renaissance art portrayals of this it's the scene guess which scene they portray chopping off his head there's a painting by um, caravaggio it's so graphic it's like in the midst and some of the paintings, it looks like she's slowly carving his God. head like a turkey for Thanksgiving. Jeez. But Caravaggio, you can tell it's a fast motion. Mm. And there's literally like streams of blood. I mean, it's the most gruesome Renaissance painting you've ever seen. Wow. Um, there's also a painting by Klimt in the 20th century of, of Judith. It's very different. Huh. Um, I it, it, I just will encourage you to look it up. It's uh, it's. It's a little not safe for work, this painting. Okay. I mean, the expression on her face, it was actually a controversial painting when it came out because of what Klimt did with this painting. Mm. Um, it's, it's, uh, yeah. And it's also, I mean, music, I think there, there are parts of her prayer and some of these other verses where she's praying to God. Um, one of the like greatest pieces of, of music in the Anglican tradition is a setting of a verse from Judith. You know that, so it just keeps showing up here and there. But anyway, best story in the apocrypha, Judith. Wow, it's amazing when you hear both of ours how much it's. They're almost like an aftertaste of the stories that have come before them. Yeah, it, they're like they're like, these tropes. They're, they're, yeah. I don't want to say regurgitated is a horrible way because they're both really good stories. But yeah. really, it's almost like these these truths that come contingently through history yeah. in different ways. It's thematic. Yeah. They're almost like like a midrash on the earlier stories. Yeah. You know, creative retelling and expanding. And yeah. and I will encourage you, I will say this. Um if if you and it's not very like 16 short chapters, read it in the King James version mm-hmm. because it's so richly written in that it's almost like Tolkien. I mean you mentioned Tolkien earlier. Yeah. This is very Tolkien-esque too. Yeah. Cool. Nice. Yeah. Any final thoughts about the Apocrypha? Check it out. Texting all my friends right now. (laughs) (laughs) Vote for Nick. (laughs) All right. Well, the cases have been presented. (laughs) Um, And now the power is in your hands. In the episode description and notes is a link to a poll. Let us know who you think told the most compelling story. Please like and subscribe if you want to hear more. You can learn more on our webpage, matchuppodcast.com. And there's also a Facebook group to join the Matchup Podcast for extra information about the show. Thanks, everyone, for listening and voting. See you next time.